All right, well, good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to Redemption Church this morning. Uh, my name is Reggie Horn, and I am one of the uh, pastors, one of the elders here at Redemption. And uh, this morning, we're going to continue through our series called Set Apart. Over the last uh, several weeks here at Redemption Church, we have been moving through um, the first couple of chapters of First Peter. Uh, today, we're starting in First Peter chapter 3. And like I said, we've been specifically looking at how in Peter, Peter establishes the fact that our identity is found in Christ, that we're set apart for God's purposes and set apart on mission. Now, this morning, uh, we're going to be specifically looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And uh, I'm just going to tell you um, that we're going to get pretty in-depth for a minute. And so this might seem um, a, a little different than a typical sermon, but what I want to do is spend a really uh, a good bit of time talking about the context of 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to look at the, the commands that Peter lays out in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And I want to talk about some uh, overall large takeaways for us to see, some big implications from the text. And so I'm just going to ask you to work hard to stay engaged with me as we look at God's Word. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll read from 1 Peter chapter 3, and then we'll move on from there. But let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together this morning. God, thank you for your Word. Thank you for what 1 Peter lays out for us as, as, as that you have set us apart, that you have saved us and set us apart to be your people, to be your people, a, a new people that you set apart for the purpose of proclaiming your excellencies, displaying your glory to the world. And so God, as we take a few minutes and uh, really dissect 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, God, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel, that the good news would be proclaimed, that Jesus would be lifted high, and that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus. God, I, I recognize that my words are of no importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance, and so God, please let us hear your words. God, please move me out of the way that we might see Jesus, and the Holy Spirit might be at work in our lives. God, we ask all this in the precious name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. First Peter chapter 3, if you want to look with me at verses 1 through 7, I'll read them uh, before we start talking about them a little more in depth. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. About a week or so ago, 
I had just left work and I was driving home and I got a text from Amy that her sister-in-law, Amy's my wife, um, but I got a text from Amy that, that her sister-in-law, Jennifer, had been in a wreck. And so the text said something like, hey, uh, Jennifer was in, in a wreck in front of the new Kroger. Um, her sister is driving to meet her now to make sure she's okay, but I just want to let you know. And so I texted back while I was driving. Yeah, I, I probably texted while I was driving. Don't do that. Uh, but I texted back and said, okay, uh, I'll just head to Kroger now uh, just to make sure everything's okay. And uh, so I drove straight to the Kroger that's on Columbia Road in Martinez. And I got there, and there was no wreck. There was no cop cars. There was nobody. And so I called Amy and said, hey, I thought you said the wreck was in front of Kroger. And Amy said, essentially in a nice way, if you look at the text, I said the wreck was in front of the new Kroger. I'm like, okay, all right, the new Kroger on Lewiston Road. I feel like when we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, what Peter intends to say to us is right there in front of us, but oftentimes we miss it and we run in a different direction, just like I did with the text that I received from Amy. It's, it was right there, the new Kroger. I knew what she meant if she had said the new Kroger. She meant the new Kroger on exit 190, Lewiston Road in Grovetown, not the Kroger on Columbia Road in Martinez, right? You with me? I feel like when we come to this passage of Scripture, we often deal with it the same way. We read the words, but we miss what's there because of the noise of culture and the noise around us. And that's what makes 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, a really difficult passage to deal with. I've been wrestling with this passage for three weeks. Ben can attest to that. And right from the get-go, let me just say that I owe a great debt of gratitude to some theologians and scholars for helping me deal with this passage, among whom are um, Jen Wilkin from the Village Church in Texas, uh, Mary Wilson from the Gospel Coalition, and Trillia Newbell from the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, their work on this passage and on First Peter has been of great benefit to me as I dealt with the preparation of this sermon, right? It's difficult because this passage deals with topics that sometimes get treated without the nuance and without the study that they deserve, right? It's difficult because there's buzz, buzzwords here, buzzwords like beauty and submission and marriage roles. And if I'm honest, I cringe a little bit and I feel the tension of this passage as I read it because Peter says and uses words like weaker vessel, be subject to, do not let your adorning be external. I, I cringe because I'm not a wife. I'm not a woman. And when I preach this passage, I'll never fully understand what it means to be a wife. I cringe when I hear Peter say that God will not hear the prayers of a husband that doesn't live in an understanding way with his wife. I cringe because that makes me stand back and question myself. Most of all, I feel the tension of really wanting to handle this passage well, of, of honoring God and honoring his text and honoring his people by dealing with this text appropriately, right? And while there's tension in these verses, we do a disservice to the text and we do a disservice to God if we run away from these passages and run away from this topic rather than diving right into it. 
we reveal doubt in God's word. We diminish God's word when we don't tackle these topics head on. Last week, Ben's main takeaway was something along these lines, right? That if we truly believe that Christ is good, if we truly believe that the gospel is good news and that Christ is good and sovereign, then we can lay down our arms and be subject where God tells us to be subject. And so this morning, what I want us to do is be subject to God's word here, the authority of God's word, the authority of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us through God's word, and what God would have for us. So we're going to dive right into this passage, and we're just going to get deep for a few minutes. Everybody good with that? You guys going to stay with me? To properly understand 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we actually need to back up. We need to back up to chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 1 Peter 1, 1. So let me read those. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good de- deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In 1 Peter 1, 1, where Peter says, Paul an apostle, I mean, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. One of the defining rules of hermeneutics, hermeneutics is the uh, study of the interpretation of Scripture. One of the defining rules of hermeneutics is the idea that context is king. Right? So to properly understand verses 1 through 7, we have to understand verses 1 through 7 within, which, within the context with which Peter places them. Peter's idea, Peter's big idea related to verses 1 through 7 actually starts in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter says this. He reminds them of their identity, right? They're sojourners and exiles. That goes back to 1-1. You're elect exiles. You, you live in these places, but you're set apart by God. So Peter reminds them of their identity, sojourners and exiles. He tells them to abstain from the passions of their flesh and instead to keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that some might be won to faith. Right? It's a, it's a, this is your identity. Therefore, abstain from this, conduct yourselves in this way so that this happens. Right? In the context that Peter lays out here, are the context of uh, Christians, their relationship with the government. He lays out the context of Christian slaves who, who are subjugated to uh, masters that may not be Christians. Uh, he deals with the topic of marriage right here in verses 3, 1 through 7. And then after that, he deals with just some general relational things. And like I said, the verses we're dealing this, with this morning are very specific about marriage. But they deal with very specific real-life contexts. And as we move forward, I want to note some very specific things about the context of 1 Peter, both within the text and within the culture and society. Number one, in highlighting their identity as sojourners in exile... Peter is reminding them that their actions flow from their identity. This is imperative to grasp in 1 Peter. None of it makes sense unless you get this. Actions flow from identity. We've got to understand and grasp that Christian ethics, how we live, is preceded by Christian identity. 
That's what Peter wanted these hearers to grasp. It's what we've got to grasp. There's no point in dealing with verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3 unless you get that. Actions flow from identity. Number two, Peter is probably addressing fairly new Christians here. Uh, That may seem obvious, but maybe not. He's addressing churches that have not existed for very long, right? Based on when Peter probably wrote this letter, based on when these churches were planted, there's probably not a big gap of time there. And so Peter is probably writing to fairly new churches and fairly new Christians. And not long before this letter was written, the folks that Peter is writing to, uh, writing this letter to, They belong to the culture where they existed rather than belonging to Christ. But now they belong to Christ. And so they exist in these cultural contexts where they're being called to be countercultural to where they live. Now they belong to Jesus and their identity is in Christ. And so the marriages that Peter addresses here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, they are marriages that are very well could have existed prior to to these men and women coming to faith. He's addressing real-world situations where there were women and men who had come to faith in Christ, but the other parties they were in relation to, their spouses, had not yet come to faith. Because one party had come to faith, there's now tension, and there's now a new dynamic in these relationships that didn't exist when the relationships first started. Right? Third thing to note here, there's a lot of nuance to this passage when it comes to understanding the marital relationships that Peter is is addressing. Keep in mind, Peter is not addressing the larger culture here. Peter is not addressing marriage within the Roman society. There's certainly things he could have addressed. That's not what he does. He addresses the men and women who are in these marital relationships inside that culture and society, whatever it is. And so when we think of marriage in modern society, we're thinking of something romantic, right? We're thinking of something where we fall in love with another person, of where we have deep connections and deep intimacy with the other person in our marital relationship. And while that very well might have existed in Roman society, we we need to grasp that there's a little difference there. Because marriage in Roman-dominated cultures was just as much an economic thing as it was anything else. And it was obvious in these marriages who had power. And women were expected to be inferior in their relationships to their husbands. Wives were expected to obey their husbands in Greco-Roman life. And this obedience included allegiance, even to their husbands' religions. And so you can maybe see why Peter needs to address this situation specifically because a husband who is married to a wife that had become a believer could literally accuse his wife of atheism to governing authorities, and that could cause her to be punished. And so Peter addresses this very real-world situation, right? Religions that forbade participation in Roman religious rites, like Christianity, were viewed with disdain. And Jewish or even Christian women at this point who refused to worship these gods could be charged with atheism. And so what Peter might really be doing here is providing a way, some practical real-world direction 
for these wives and these husbands in verse 7 to reduce marital tensions and to reduce causes of hostility. I believe in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, just like in chapter 2, Peter's main concern here is with the wives. That's where his concern lies. And in chapter 2, I think his concern lies with the slaves that are mentioned, and that's why, that's why he addresses them and uses most of the time to address those subjects. And he continues to advocate for submission to authority for the sake of reducing tensions and providing a way for these people and these subjugated relationships to glorify God and potentially lead the other people to faith. He advocates that they would trust God is good and sovereign and that what God is calling them to do is actually for their benefit. And he directs them on how to do that. It's very practical advice that Peter gives here to a very specific situation with the ultimate purpose of seeing some people come to faith because of the way these Christian wives, these Christian husbands abstain from passions of the flesh and conduct themselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. The thing to realize is that Peter reminds them of their identity, like I already said. That identity leads to real-world action in these relationships because now the single most defining characteristic of a Christian is their relationship with Christ rather than their relationship with their husband or spouse. And so when you read this letter as a whole as it was intended, you see the big picture that Peter is tying identity to action. Peter is tying identity to mission, even within the context of marriages where one spouse is a believer and another is not. It's the whole message of Peter to begin with, right? God set you apart for a purpose so that you might be on mission. Identity is all through Peter. Mission is all through Peter. You can't really separate the two. They go together. And so here the identity leads to specific actions and specific relationships with the purpose of bringing glory to God so that some people might come to faith. Here's how I'm going to move on uh, and dive into these verses for a second. There are three verbal commands that you see in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. There's one in verse 1. There's another verbal command that happens in verses 3 and 4. And then there's another verbal command that happens in verse 7. I want to break those down. I want to look at what the command is and what that command means. I want to look at why Peter says to do these things. And then I want to talk about some implications or some takeaways from that. So the first command we see is in 1 Peter Chapter 3, verse 1. And Peter says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. So what does that mean? Wives, be subject to your own husbands. For starters, let's be clear that this command here is being made to married women. It's being made to to the wives who are part of the body of Christ in the churches that he is writing to, and it's made in reference to their singular marital relationships. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. So he's not saying, women, all of you are to be submissive people. Peter's not saying that. He's not saying that any given wife should be subject to any given husband. What he's saying is, in your marriage that you're in, be subject to your own husband. When Peter says be subject to, here's what I think he means. 
I think he means something along the lines of willingly placing yourself under someone else's leadership. We should not see the biblical call here to be about subjugation or weakness. Whether we should see it as a form of strength through gentleness. The reason I say that is Peter goes on to talk about having a gentle spirit and a gentle heart. And I'm going to dive into that in a second. And within the context of this passage, that's, that's what we should see here. Do you know who else in Scripture says that they are gentle? Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So let me just go ahead and say that gentleness or submission or being subject to, as Peter says here, is not just something for women. It's not just a feminine thing. Christ was gentle. Peter calls the wives to be gentle. But in just a few verses later, Peter calls husbands to be gentle as well. Just as Christ is gentle, just as Christ submitted to the Father, Peter is here calling us to submit to God's word in some very real ways. For this passage, why Peter says to do this, it's actually pretty straightforward. Peter says so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Why conduct yourselves in this way? Why be subject to your husband's? So that your husbands would be one to Christ. It's a missional directive. Peter here is saying your identity should lead to conduct that actually could potentially lead to your husband coming to faith. What are the implications of this directive? We've got to see in this context. We've got to understand this. Peter here is not making overall broad statements about how women are to always be submissive in every area of life. That's not what he's doing. It would be an abuse of Scripture in this passage, in this verse, to say that women are to be submissive generally. He's saying, in your marriages, Christian wives, be subject to your husband. That doesn't mean as a woman that you don't speak or act or exert influence and leadership In fact, the very purpose of why Peter says to do this is so that you do have influence in the life of your husband. It doesn't mean that you automatically follow your husband when he's leading you into sin. It doesn't mean that you should put the will of your husband before the will of Christ. Nor does it ever mean that you should subject yourselves or be subject to a husband that is abusive in any way. Let me go ahead and say this, right? An abusive husband has already abdicated his leadership in a marriage and in no way is a Christian woman required to live in the midst of an abusive relationship where she is abused. I've shared this with you before. This is going to get pretty real for a second. But both of my parents died tragically when I was eight years old. Uh, part of the reason that both of my parents died tragically is a direct result of physical abuse. On Christmas Eve in 1983, um, just for a To put it bluntly, my father got really, really drunk. My father, as much as it's difficult to say, was an abusive person. 
And uh, my biological father got really, really drunk on Christmas Eve of 1983. My mother came home from work. She was a 911 dispatcher. She came home from work, and my father attacked her physically uh, to the point of her becoming unconscious. My father then uh, went into his room and took his own life. And I remember as an 8-year-old having to call 911 and explain what was going on and waiting for the police and waiting for the first responders to arrive. About seven months later, my mother died as a direct result of the events of that day. I, I won't go into details, but as a direct result of the events of what happened that day. And let me just say, both from a real-world experience of being in the middle of that, and based on God's word here, for my sisters in this room, I hope to God that none of you are in that situation. And if you are, there is no requirement in Scripture that you stay in that situation. Your brothers and sisters in Christ that are in this room will help you. We'll get you out of that situation, and then we'll deal with the marriage relationship after that's done. But there's no requirement at all for you to stay and be abused. It's just not there. Your brothers and sisters in this room will go to bat for you and will fight for you if you need that. Second thing to see here, Peter is not addressing the role of women in the church. You cannot use this passage to talk about the role of women in the church because Peter's not doing that. He's simply addressing marital relationships. And he's outlying ways to honor God in practical ways inside of a marriage where one person's a believer and one person is not. He's providing a missional directive for Christian wives to be on mission to see their spouses come to faith. That's what Peter's doing. Verse 3, second directive. It's verse 3 and 4, actually. I'll read them. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry are the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you were her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What does this mean? Right? The, the heart of what Peter is getting at, I think, is a directive to pursue something internal that leads to further identification with Christ rather than something external that leads to identification with culture. Our culture, the culture that Peter was writing to, the context that Peter was writing to, was a culture in which women were subjugated and objectified. It's the same in our culture. You only need to look at what's the news coming out of Hollywood over the last couple of weeks to, to, to be reminded of how terrible our culture is in this way. But the call on the life of an elect exile, what Peter says these Christians that he's writing to are, the call on the life of an, an elect exile is to be countercultural, countercultural, to exist in a culture but to recognize that the culture within which you live is not your home. It's not where you get an identity. It would be a mistake to assume Peter is saying that wearing jewelry or braiding your hair or wearing stylish clothes is sinful in and of itself. That's not what he's saying. 
based on the overall context of the passage, Peter is saying that elect exiles should focus on something internal that is precious to the heart of God. That's what verse 4 says. Rather than something external that is precious to man. Why do it? Because it's precious in the sight of God. Why do it? Because we have examples of godly women who have gone before us that have done it. Right? What else should we see here in these four verses? It's interesting to note that Peter says this internal beauty is imperishable. It's something that lasts. This beauty of having a gentle and quiet spirit lasts longer than any external beauty ever will. So what is this beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit? What does that even mean? If we allow the culture within within which we exist to define those terms, if we allow culture to define those terms, let me just go ahead and tell you that my daughter Laurel will never meet that definition. My daughter Laurel is loud, and she's always moving, and she's never quiet. Those of you who know her know exactly what I'm talking about. She's rambunctious and strong, and quite frankly, I kind of love her being that way. So we can't look to culture to define what this means. When we think of a woman who is gentle, we tend to envision someone who is seen and not heard. But if we do that, we're allowing our cultural understanding to define what the Bible means instead of allowing the Bible to define our cultural understanding. The Greek word for gentle that Peter uses here means something along the lines of mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit, and meekness. Remember who else was gentle? Jesus. Right? And that may seem like our cultural definition, But gentleness and meekness as a biblical concept as a whole has more to do with the disposition towards God in which we accept his dealings with us as good. That it's like what Ben said last week, that if we truly believe that Christ is good and sovereign, then we can lay down our arms and trust that God is good when he tells us to be gentle. Jen Wilkins says that in the Old Testament, the meek are those who were wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend them against injustice. And so we've got to see this definition of gentleness as the attitude of placing trust in God, even down to God's directive right here in this passage. A a woman who is gentle understands at the deepest level that God is in control. She doesn't have to be anxious about her circumstances because God will defend her, protect her, and love her. And that's why Peter says in verse 6, there's no place for fear in the life of a godly woman who trusts in her ultimate protector, God himself. There's a third directive here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, he's already said likewise wives, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What does this mean? In this verse, keep this in mind, Peter is writing to a group of men, women who live in a society where husbands could legally discard their children as infants, visit prostitutes, and make life 
miserable for their wives. So when Peter tells husbands to show honor to their wives as weaker vessels, we've got to understand that socially and culturally, women were in a weakened state relationally. Their marital union, the husband held a stronger place. And some scholars make the argument that Peter is referring to physical strength here. And maybe so. I I have my doubts that that's actually what he's doing, but, but maybe so. Because that would have been a common cultural conception, but I'm not sure that's all that he means. I'm not comfortable with that alone. I will say as a shout out to my wife that she's one of the strongest people I know. And I know this because I make her arm wrestle me regularly. (laughs) And we do this to figure out who the strongest person in our house is. And if she arm wrestled any of you guys in this room, I guarantee you I'd bet on her. She's a beast. But anyway, it's just reality that women were in a weaker position in their marital unions in this society. That's just that's the, how it was. And so Peter tells these Christian husbands to live in an understanding manner with their wives. Right? And this, this direction to live in an understanding manner, I think, has something to do about having insight about your wife that leads you to care for her well, to be considerate, to pay attention, to make sure in every way she is cared for and loved as you're thoughtful toward her. Peter says to show honor as with someone weaker. He doesn't say she is weaker. He says show honor as with someone weaker. Husbands, part of what Peter is saying there is don't you dare intimidate your wife because of your position or your size or your strength. Instead, protect her. Husbands, don't force your way because you're bigger and stronger or because you hold a position of strength in the marriage, whether it be physically or culturally or whatever. Rather, act with gentleness. Husbands should use their positions. Husbands should use their masculinity to serve their wives, not to threaten and control them. Right? Why? Why? Peter goes on to say that God takes this so seriously that he will refuse the prayers of any man who deals dishonorably with his wife. In a way, God is telling husbands this, if you will not show your wife honor, neither will I show you honor. If you will not live with her in an understanding way, neither will I live with you in an understanding way. If you will not hear her petitions, neither will I listen to your prayers. That's tough. That's really tough to hear as a husband. I realize Peter is is not saying that by honoring your wife, you are earning God's favor or God's grace. Peter's not saying do this in order to achieve some proper standing with God. That comes through Christ's death and Christ's death alone. But Peter is saying that your wives are your equal. And in the sight of God, they get the same grace and mercy that you get. And your position simply calls you to act honorably in an understanding way and disobeying God's word as it relates to this command has some very dire consequences that we need to be aware of 
So husbands, let me just ask you, are you understanding with your wife? Do you honor her? Do you view her as your equal, like Scripture says? Are you condescending and abusive with your words or otherwise? Are you negligent, heartless, thoughtless, careless? Right? Brothers, some of you in this room may wonder why God seems distant. Why don't you start looking right here? You wonder why you want to draw near to God and it doesn't seem to go the way you think it should. I'm not saying for sure this is the reason. But this is certainly somewhere we should look. Sin has consequences. Sin messes things up. And when you sin in the way that you deal with your wife, which is what this is, when you don't deal with your wife in an understanding way, as Peter directs, it's not just that you're messing up, you're sinning. And that sin has some dire consequences. Sin should be taken seriously because it cost Jesus his life. It is not something to be pandered with. Maybe there's some repentance to do for your marriage in the way you've treated your wife or not treated her. There are two big takeaways that I want us to see from this passage. We've looked at the context of this passage to hopefully help us understand exactly what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. There's two big takeaways that I want us to see where this passage has some larger implications, right? Number one, this passage has implications related to both marriage and singleness. Most of what I've said here has been, most of 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7 is actually directed toward wives. But there's also the passage to husbands, but there's also implications for singleness here. Right, we've seen that people in marriage relationships are called to be on mission even inside their own marriages. That's, that's what Peter is saying here. But I think the implications go a little further as well. When we think of marriage and when we think of singleness, we should think of those states of being as gifts. Right? But we've got to change the paradigm for how we think of what a gift is. We tend to think of a gift as something that is given to me to make me happy, to fulfill me, to bring me some sort of pleasure, to bring me some sort of joy. But I think scripturally, the Bible challenges us to rewrite our definition of gift. And instead of seeing it as something we get, we're to see it as something we're given, not just for our sake, but for the sake of others. Right? That's, that's what First Peter is all about. You're in elect exile. I set you apart so that you will proclaim the excellencies of Christ. God set you apart, but he set you apart with a purpose, and that gift leads to action. Right? So singleness and marriage as Christians and for Christians are gifts, not because they are the fulfillment of what we want for ourselves, but because God has graciously bestowed them on us for the common good of the body of Christ and the world, for us. Right? We should see marriage as a gift, which an honorable relationship displays to the world a picture of what it means for Christ to love the church and for the church to submit to the will of Christ. And singleness is a gift inasmuch as it displays to the world what it means for us to have a singular passion for Christ, a singular focus that is not hindered by a spouse. Right, I say that in order to encourage those who are not married, that your state of singleness is just as important as the state of marriage. 
It may not feel that way. It may not seem that way sometimes. But it is just as valuable to God, to the church, and to you as the state of marriage would be. Second big takeaway. The overall impetus of 1 Peter, the overall impetus of 1 Peter 3 verses 1 through 7, even though it's about wives and husbands, the overall directive here is about mission. As missionaries, as elect exiles, as people that God set apart in a culture to proclaim his excellencies to that culture, as missionaries, we should be trusting God's counterintuitive ways over our own. Being subject to whomever God calls us to be subject to is ultimately done for the glory of God so that others come to faith as we're obedient to Christ. If we truly see how Christ is good in all of life, then our whole lives will joyfully and sacrificially speak the gospel through both the words that we use and the way that we love those that we are in relationship to. Our whole life should be seen through the lens of mission. So we've got to ask ourselves, in the relationships that God has given us, in our homes, first and foremost, that's what 1 Peter chapter 3 is about, but in the relationships that God has given us, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in whatever areas of influence that God has given us, do we see ourselves as being on mission? And do we see ourselves as being on mission relationally? And that's what 1 Peter 3 is really about, being on mission for the gospel. I trust, I trust that as we walk away from this place this morning, that God will continue to be at our work and our hearts and minds dealing with us on these subjects, dealing with us on what it means to reflect God's glory to the world around us through our actions and just, if not more importantly, through our words. Um, we're going to enter a time of response. We have a time of response every Sunday here at Redemption. Um, and the purpose of this time of response is literally to give us an opportunity to respond to what God is doing in our hearts and minds. It's an opportunity for us to maybe worship through singing. The band's going to come back up in a second, continue to lead us in song. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to uh, respond in worship by giving. There's a giving basket in the back where you can give your tithes and offerings. It's an opportunity for us to respond through maybe praying or maybe uh, sitting right where we are and reflecting on what we've heard. Um, there'll probably be some people in the back that you can pray with if you need to pray with someone, but it gives us that opportunity to respond in that way. It also gives us an opportunity to respond through communion. Every Sunday we do communion, and the reason we do that is that as we take communion, um, Scripture tells us that we are remembering what Christ has done for us, we're remembering the good news of the gospel, and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it. We're saying what Christ has done for us is good, and we're proclaiming that we believe the truth of the gospel. So I would invite you to come and take communion, whether you're a member of Redemption or not. If God frees you to do so, you can walk down this middle aisle, go in either direction, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. Remember the body of Christ that was broken for us. Remember the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Remember that the gospel is true and proclaim to one another that we believe it. I'm going to pray for us and we'll move on with that time of response. God, thank you for your word in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
God, even though culturally and within our context, sometimes the things that we read about and we talked about are hard to hear and maybe even harder to do. But God, thank you that your word is good. Thank you that you have our best interests at heart. And then when you call us to be obedient, there's a reason and a purpose behind it. God, thank you that we get to be a part of something that you're doing that's much bigger than ourselves. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that Christ did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And God, may even now as we uh, spend some time responding, that Christ would still be lifted high in this place and that we would be drawn to you because of Christ and because of Christ alone. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.